Oh, good morning. Uh, it's really good to be uh, with you again. Uh, my name, as you know, is Mike Simpson, and I'm a member of the leadership community here at Bayview. Now, I've been given the privilege today uh, by Steve of sharing with you my story, my testimony as part of our summer series throughout January. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, of course, telling your life story, giving your testimony can be dangerous. At a Wednesday evening church meeting, a very wealthy man rose to give his testimony. I'm a millionaire, he said, and I attribute all my riches to God in my life. I can still remember the turning point in my faith like it was yesterday. I had just earned my first dollar and I went to the church meeting that night. The speaker was a missionary who told us about his work. I knew that I only had that one dollar coin. And had either to give it all to God's work or nothing at all. So at that moment I decided to give my whole dollar to God. I believe that God blessed that decision and that is why I am a rich man today. Now as it was uh, finishing, it was clear that everyone had been very moved by this man's story. But as he took his seat, a little old lady just sitting in the seat next to him leaned over and said, wonderful story, I dare you to do it again. In his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, pastor and author Rick Warren enumerates the five reasons why people are on this earth. He says we're here for God's pleasure, for God's family, to become like Christ, to serve God for a mission. It's when we realise these purposes for our existence that we'll start living, says Rick Warren. The first line of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. I wonder if how many have read The Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, lots of you. The first line says, it's not about you. Now, millions of Americans would have picked this book up because they love self-help books. And this would have been the first self-help book ever picked up which started off with, it's not about you. Rick says, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfilment, your peace of mind or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, 
you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. So this testimony this morning, this story this morning is not about me, but about God and his grace and about the way that he's worked in my life. Now, I was born in the United Kingdom in 1951 in a town on the east coast called Ipswich, which is in Suffolk. Anyone else ever been to Ipswich? Yes, two or three people, that's right. Ipswich in Suffolk. And I lived in public housing. It was called a council house in those days with my parents, George and Barbara Simpson, and my two sisters, Anne and Gillian, who were younger than me. I was baptised as a baby into the Church of England and later sent to Sunday school run by the local Church of England church. Now, my parents didn't attend church. I think they saw Sunday school as a great bit of free babysitting. That was wonderful. Here are some early pictures of me. Wasn't I a beautiful baby? <laughs> we better go on to the next one, please, uh, Josh. I was an adorable toddler. Where did they get that hat? Try the next one. Oh, who put that one in there? Showing off even at that age. What about the next one, Josh? Which, which one's me? The one with the budgie smugglers, that's right, yes, yeah. <laughs> Typical. We were at a Butlins holiday camp. Do you remember Butlins holiday camps? Yeah, this was the running race, so I was in the middle there. What about the next one, Josh? What a student. That's how they took school photographs in those days, do you remember? By uh, about the age of eight, I was a member of the uh, church choir, which meant I was paid and uh, it gave me enough money to follow uh, my passion for following the local soccer team, Ipswich Town. Butter wouldn't melt <laughs> in my mouth. My grandmother was the only one who was allowed to touch the surplus, as it's called, the, the sort of white dress, and the ruff, the ruffle, as it was called, around there, and she would starch it. So it was just brilliant bright. At the age of uh, 11, I made up my mind that I wanted to join the Royal Air Force and become a pilot. I left the choir and I joined a huge organisation in those days called the Air Training Corps. And at the age of 16, I'd done really well in the Air Training Corps. I'd reached the rank of cadet warrant officer, which is as high as you could get as a cadet, I'd obtained my glider pilot's wings, uh, pinned on me by Douglas Barter, the World War II Spitfire pilot who'd uh, lost both his legs, but he continued to fly during the war. And I also won the inaugural Douglas Barter Award in the uh, squadron that I was in. I loved everything about the cadets, and I had no time for church or for God. I joined the Royal Air Force as a cadet officer 10 days before my 18th birthday. 
not to be trained as a pilot, but, as it would turn out, as an air traffic controller. And after completing officer training, I arrived at RAF Shawbury as a brand new pilot officer to undergo 16 weeks of intensive training. And I soon learned that being a controller was much better than being a pilot. I told pilots where to go. <laughs> After training, my first posting was to RAF Cranwell, and Prince Charles was there doing his jet training, and I talked him down on a number of occasions during his instrument training. I was promoted to the rank of flying officer. It was a great life, living in the officer's mess with everything found. I had a personal servant who would clean my shoes for me when I left them outside the door. He would come every morning with a cup of tea. Morning tea, sir? And put it beside my bed for me. He would make sure my uniform was pressed and that everything was in ship-shape order. I had a career I loved and the world at my feet at the age of 20. Who could ask for anything more? I didn't need God. I was God. I wasn't a very nice person to know. I played hard. I lived hard, full of myself, selfish and perfect. <laughs> I'm reminded of that old song which just about summed me up. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. <laughs> When you're perfect in every way, I can't wait to look in the mirror cause I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a wonderful guy. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. <laughs> I used to call myself an agnostic. It was easy to sit on the fence. But things were about to change. I was suddenly posted to Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, arriving in March 1972. Anyone been to Malta? Yes? Beautiful island. It's 12 miles long and 9 miles wide. The lunch date had been arranged for Saturday the 5th of May by a colleague of mine who had met two English young women who were visiting the island. Now, I wasn't sure about joining them because it was FA Cup final day in the UK and I wanted to watch the game. But I tossed the coin and I decided to go to the lunch. And I was introduced to Sally, who's sitting just up the back there in Anglican Alley over there. Now, she didn't like me at first, and who could blame her? Uh, I spent the whole lunch telling stupid jokes. Do you remember, dear? Yes. <laughs> Things like, you know, uh, a man walked into a bar. Ouch, it was an iron bar. <laughs> I went to the barbers. I said, uh, how much for a haircut? He said, $10. I said, how much for a shave? He said, $8. I said, shave my head. <laughs> and they were much worse than that as well but I thought she was beautiful. 
She had this wonderful smile and presence that just took my breath away, and it still does. I was intrigued because Sally was so different to me. She was gentle and mature and kind. And after lunch, I asked her what she was doing the next day, the Sunday. And she said she was going to church. And without thinking, I said, I'll come with you. (laughs) And the old familiar Church of England service just enveloped me. And I was found by God. Sally had opened the door of a new life for me. One of my favourite pictures that I have. Look at the hair. (laughs) This was just before my 21st birthday. Um, And we were in Valletta in uh, Malta. And at the age of 21, having been prepared for confirmation, I stood at St Paul's Anglican Cathedral in Valletta in Malta and I said these words as I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I turn to Christ, I repent of my sins, I reject all that is evil, confirming the vows that have been made for me at my baptism. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he could give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. I came across this story which summed up what had happened to me. An American Indian was asked to explain the grace of Jesus. He took a pile of leaves and an earthworm and he laid the worm in the leaves and he set the leaves on fire. And at the last minute, he lifted the worm out of the leaves and said, that is the way that Jesus saved me. Now Sally and I were married a year later, in June 1973. How young we look there, in full RAF uniform. We were blessed with two children, Sarah and Jonathan, and now have three grandchildren, Jemima, Zoe and Darcy, and there's one on the way for next June. But that's not the end of the story. My life had changed and I started to mature slowly, Sally and I became involved in church life wherever we found ourselves, posted in the United Kingdom, and my faith started to grow. After 12 years in the Royal Air Force controlling military aircraft, I decided that I wanted to become a civil air traffic controller. This is the only photograph of me at work as an air traffic controller that I have. The other guy there was my assistant, he's a corporal there, and we were tracking aircraft uh, over the North Sea in UK. 
In June 1981, I was interviewed by the Australian Department of Transport, as it was then, and I was accepted and we found ourselves on a Qantas 747 flying to Australia and landing in Melbourne at 11am on the 11th of November 1981. I did a six-month conversion course and then spent the next 10 years controlling at both Tullamarine and Essendon airports. I was on controlling the day that TAA, as it was then, and uh, ANSET Airlines went on strike. Do you remember the pilot strike? No aircraft moved out of Telemarine. I was at Essendon Airport. They sat me in the chair at 7 o'clock in the morning and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon they pulled me out of the chair and I hadn't stopped talking because every little aircraft that they could muster at Essendon Airport had been pushed into service and as they were going up, no sooner had I got them away but they were all coming back again quite some day. We lived in uh, Sunbury and we're soon involved in the local Anglican church, St Mary's. The new vicar there, Bob Tett, just took me under his wing. He discipled me and challenged me to explore my vocation. I resisted at first because I had a young family, a well-paid job that I loved, but sometimes God stirs us out of comfortable situations in order to stretch us and cause us to use our faith. We may not like it, it may not always be comfortable, but God loves us too much to just leave us the way we are. If there's one thing we know about life is that it is constantly changing. The good news is that change brings growth and can teach us a lot of wisdom if we're willing to learn and to move forward. Now, part of exploring my vocation was to have a weekly Bible study with my vicar Bob. We studied the books of 1 and 2 Samuel together. And 1 Samuel chapter 3 was the clincher. Then God called out, Samuel, Samuel. And then he ran to Eli saying, I heard your call, here I am. Eli said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And so he did and God called again, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Got up and went to Eli. I heard you call, here I am. God called again, Samuel, the third time. Yet again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Yes, I heard you call me, here I am. So Eli directed Samuel, go back and lie down. If the voice calls you again, say, speak God. I'm your servant, ready to listen. Samuel returned to his bed. Then God came and stood before him exactly as before, calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak. I'm your servant, ready to listen. I was ordained in St Paul's Anglican Cathedral in Melbourne on the 14th of February, 1993. The man who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, has an epitaph that reads like this. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith 
he had long laboured to destroy. I spent the next 23 years doing just that, preaching the faith. Now, it wasn't all plain sailing. When I left air traffic control to become a minister in the church, my colleagues said, why are you going into that stressful occupation? (laughs) And it was very stressful at times. In 2003, my wife Sally was diagnosed with breast cancer. And in October 2017, the cancer metastasized into her bones. But she has had the most wonderful treatment and is doing so well, as you can see. She still is my inspiration for everything. Now, we arrived at Bayview just after I had retired uh, on my 65th birthday. You welcomed us here so graciously and enveloped us like a warm blanket. We were allowed to sit and be refreshed and now we are honoured and privileged to be part of this wonderful faith community. I believe that it's often only when we look back on our lives and we see how God is at work preparing us for his work of ministry. As I reflect on my life, I see Jesus gently waiting outside the door, knocking and waiting for me to open it. Now, if you feel like that today, may I encourage you to open the door and let Jesus into your life. It will be the start of a great adventure. And for those of you already on the journey, tell your story to others. It's the very best form of evangelism. Now I want to close with a song that we used to sing nearly every Sunday or on a big occasion in the little bluestone church in Sunbury. It became a sort of anthem and sung with great gusto. It sustained me in good times and difficult times. You might like to uh, join in if you know it. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on the way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go, and never fear, only trust and obey. 
Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what we will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerily. No bickering, no second-guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't do all this work for nothing. In the name of the living God. Amen.